Well, church, may I invite you to turn uh, your bi- in your Bibles to the ninth Psalm this morning, and you'll find that on page uh, 451 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along there. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we love for you to just take that Pew Bible home as your own. It's our gift to you. Psalm 9, as you'll note, uh, 20 verses. We're going to, um, surprise, surprise, go verse by verse uh, through this text this morning. And so I trust, I really think you'd be blessed to have a copy of God's Word open as we refer to it repeatedly uh, during our time together in His Word. Uh, beginning next week, we're going to begin, a, uh, of course, a very brief Advent uh, a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And I trust we'll be richly blessed through that. I'm excited to be able to explore those truths that we hold so dear together. And I'm also excited for next week, uh, I believe it is Don, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have the Christmas cantata that will be performing uh, next week, or, or not performing, but leading us in worship, I should say. And I trust that we'll be richly blessed by that and in that. And what a wonderful opportunity it will be to invite neighbors and friends to come um, uh, worship with us. Those who might be more inclined to come into a church building around Christmas time be a great opportunity. And I trust they will be encouraged as you will be as well. And so now here we are in Psalm, the ninth Psalm, Psalm 9. Hear now the word of God. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and for those who know your name, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you, who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit they have made, in the net that they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Our Father... We now come to you as your word declares. We are reminded of your greatness, that you sit upon a throne in heaven and reign in righteousness and uprightness, that you are perfect in all your ways, and that you will judge the nations according to your own character. You are not partial to lies and deceit. But you will give justice perfectly. And so we praise you for it. That our God rules. And it's to this God that we even now come to hear from you. We find our delight in your word is like honey to our souls. And may it be a rich pleasure for us as we hear from you. As you speak to us by your spirit and through the preached word. So we pray as Samuel taught us long ago. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. 
For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You'll forgive me for uh, reminding you of perhaps a trite story I've shared before of a young woman who went to her mother and told her mother about her great troubles. Her mother took her to the kitchen and brought three pots to boiling upon the stovetop. In the first pot, she placed carrots. In the second, she placed eggs. In the third, she scooped coffee. After a while, she turned off the burners and and scooped the carrots into a bowl and the eggs as well, and and then finally poured two cups of coffee. She turned to her daughter and asked, what do you see? She replied, carrots, eggs, and coffee. Feel the carrots, her mother said, and they were soft and limp. Peel an egg. The daughter did so, revealing a hard-boiled egg. And finally, her mother smiled and handed her a cup of coffee. The girl asked, Mom, what does this mean? Her mom explained that each of these objects faced the same adversity, that of boiling water, and yet each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong and hard, and after boiling water, it was limp. The egg had been fragile and delicate, but now it was hard, and the coffee stands alone, doesn't it? For it alone released its fragrance in the flavor of the water. The mother asked her, which one are you? When trouble comes into your life, will you go limp like a carrot? Will you harden like an egg? Or will you release the fragrance of your faith? Of course, we all knew coffee would be the hero. (laughs) Certainly wouldn't be the carrots. Seems to be a question that is before David as he pens the ninth psalm. He seems to be in the midst of adversity. You see, he notes his enemies in verse 3, even praying in verse 13. For God to see his affliction from those who hate him. We're not sure who the enemies are, for David certainly had many, didn't he? He he had enemies from nations, he had enemies from the royal house, he had enemies from his advisors, he had enemies even from his own family. At times he lived in caves as he was hunted by King Saul and his mighty men. He ran for, for his life as his son Absalom and, and thousands with him led a successful coup overthrowing his father. In fact, the Bible speaks of this adrenaline-pumping, bone-weary run for your life throughout the night because your son wants to kill you. And all along the way, he was even taunted with curses and pelted with stones by the foul-mouthed Shimei, who seemed to have nothing better to do that day. We're told in Scripture... 2 Samuel chapter 25, that David went up to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. You see, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, perhaps the greatest of all the world's kings, knew trouble and trial. He was indeed acquainted with adversity and affliction. And so the question before him is, how will he respond in the midst of such opposition? The question, therefore, is before you and I, is it not? How will you respond when trouble comes upon you? Perhaps you even came in here in trouble. You know a bit of what it's like to be in affliction. You know what it's like to endure heartache. The loneliness of this season is strong in your own heart even now. How will you respond? When the future is uncertain, when trouble comes. Psalm 9 is David's response. Perhaps it will be yours as well. As we see a prayerful praise in troubling times. In other words, David says, in the midst of trouble, I will sing my praise to God and I will offer my prayers. And that will simply be our two points for this, this morning. The first 12 verses seem to be David's praise of God. We'll praise him for the past acts. And then in verse 13, he'll get to, perhaps to the heart of this psalm, or at least laying out his, finally laying out his petitions as he offers his prayers for future help. Before we look at those two points, just two footnotes for you, if you will. You might uh, be interested to know that this psalm is an acrostic. The first word in verse 1 begins with the first word in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The first word in verse 3 begins with a second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, bet, and so on. Aleph, bet, gimadelache, vav, sign, het. See, I learned something in seminary. Right? That's about all my Hebrew, by the way. So, it, uh, so he begins. There are, in fact, there are 10 two-verse stanzas going through the first 10 
letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Interestingly enough, Psalm, the 10th Psalm picks up where Psalm 9 uh, ends. And so it begins with the 11th uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and on it goes. Um, and, and in fact, uh, even in the Roman Catholic tradition, you might know or might be interested to know that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are actually combined into one psalm. They follow the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we call the Septuagint. Protestants follow the Hebrew translation, and therefore we divide Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Uh, It probably doesn't matter if we combine them or divide uh, divide them. But it is an interesting question, isn't it, to think, well, why does does David go to such uh, trouble to begin each of these stanzas with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet? Well, of course, we can only speculate, but it perhaps might be a, a literary or poetic way to demonstrate that God's provision in times of trouble is comprehensive. It knows no end. The other footnote I want you to uh, be aware of that might help us as we study this passage is that David will move from his own individual needs to the needs of the people of God at large. He'll shift from my enemies to our enemies. He'll shift from my needs to our needs. He'll shift from um, I'm afflicted to we are afflicted. We'll see this happen a couple times. I mention that because I think it'll be helpful not just to read this as in your own individual context, though I think that's important to do so. Certainly David does. But we might also read this psalm in the context that we now are the people of God and that God would act this way not just for me but for us in our midst. And so let us begin here with uh, the first point, if you will. Praise, God, David's praise for the past rescue. And by the way, if you're keeping time this morning, um, I will spend the bulk of my time on point one. So do not despair um, <laughs> as we move on. So, uh, praise for the past rescue. He begins in verse one, doesn't he? Saying, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. In other words, in the heat of crisis, as we've already seen, when, when David is, is in need of God's help, in d- degree in some, some ways desperate for him, people are trying to kill him, as we see in verse 13, he refuses to rush into God's presence in the midst of panic, demands, God, I need you to do this, do this, do this, all, all unsettled. But rather, in the middle of the crisis, David begins what? Praising God. His first response, in other words, in times of trouble, is to forget his trouble. And for just a moment, worship, praise. To be preoccupied with the Lord before he is preoccupied with himself and his circumstances. That's kind of difficult to do, isn't it? It requires an act of the will. And I think David clearly demonstrates that here. This seems to be very determined praise, doesn't it? You notice again in verse 1, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. And in verse 2, for good measure, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O most high. Four times David declares, I will do this. David makes, in other words, a decision to praise God, even when there are plenty of reasons not to. It's not often you wake up in a cave, living as a fugitive, people hunting for your life, and you conclude, well, isn't this a lovely day? I think I'll sing this morning. I think I'll praise the Lord. This is determined praise. He has decided to do this. That is, he is not waiting for his emotions to catch up. Emotions, if you're anything like me, don't always feel like praising. We don't always feel our hearts are not always engaged in that. And yet David is not waiting for his emotions to say, okay, it's time to praise. He rather lets his will make that decision. Much like Paul and Silas perhaps did. As you remember that incredible story in the book of Acts with lacerated backs and feet bound in stalks and the prison door bound tight in front of them there at midnight. They were not emotionally disposed to singing. They were probably emotionally uh, disposed to griping, to complaining, uh, uh, to, to, to whining, to crying, but they decided to praise God regardless because God is praiseworthy. God is praiseworthy when the sun is shining and God is praiseworthy when the dungeon door is locked. And so my question for you, brothers and sisters, the question this psalmist raises is have you made such a decision? Have you declared in your own heart Have you declared to God himself, I will praise my Lord. I will be counted among those who sing praises to the most high God. When you gather, for instance, on Sunday mornings, do you come out of habit? Or are you coming thinking today? Do you think this this morning as you drove here or got ready? Today, I get to worship God. 
with God's people. In fact, not only do I get to, I will. I have determined that is what I will do, and I won't mumble it out. I won't give it under my breath. It's not going to be half-hearted praise. I will be like David, as he says in verse 1, praise with my whole heart. So many today, especially in Western Christianity, uh, come to worship, and they're waiting for the music to kind of move them along, and they go, okay, now I get caught up in this, and then off I go. Okay, now I'll start singing. If everything's to my liking, and it's all working, and there's a great movement that's happening, David says that's nonsense. I'm not waiting for that to happen. God is worthy of this uh, honor uh, and praise that I give him, and so I will do it. David praised. Paul and Silas sang. Will you do not be one who's so preoccupied with your own personal needs that you have no desire to declare God's greatness? Rather, when you stumble in that troublesome valley or when you're soaring in, uh, among the joyful heavens or anywhere in between, may you declare, let this be known of me. I will praise my Lord. In fact, David says, I'm going to do this because what? Verse 1, of all your wonderful deeds. It's just not determined praise, it's reasoned praise. That is, his worship is not wishful thinking. He's, he's going to praise God for what he has done. This is what we always do. We're either praising God for who he is or what he has done. We praise God for his character or his work. In particular, David says, I'm going to praise you for your work. I'm going to praise you for what you've done. And this is not what we see, especially this time of Advent. It seems like everyone's running around praising God, don't they? I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, the angels are praising, and the, the shepherds are praising, and Mary's writing her song, and, and, uh, and, and Zachariah's doing his thing. you got Simeon and Anna. They're all praising. Everybody's the magi are bowing. Everybody seems to be worshiping, right? And this is what, it, why? Because of what God has done. It is his, it, because of his wonderful deeds, David says. They recount. He's, I'm going to tell everybody about what you have done. I've mentioned to you before that other than the angels, it seems to me that in all of creation, humans are the, on, uh, can be, um, are the only ones who can be counted as spectators. Spectators. That, that we, unlike the rest of creation, we, we, we will gather together and watch other people do events and find great joy in just watching them. And so we, we watch our uh, sports team. Right? And we delight in the, in, in the athlete's skill. And if your team wins, right, like many of your team won this fall, you kind of feel like you were on the field with them, don't you? You feel like you, you share in that accomplishment and, and you, you rejoice in it and you like to speak about it. And we shout in triumph and we spend hours talking about it. And maybe sports isn't your thing. Maybe it's music. Right? And we'll gather together thousands of people. One person will be playing music and thousands will gather just to watch that person play music. And we in some way feel united with him and one another as we do so. We are, by our very nature, spectators. We derive joy by watching the experiences of others. Well, above all, I think what we should watch, in fact, we considered this last week, I think, to some degree, is that we should be spectators of divine glory, of the work of our God and what he has done. That, that, that we are made, I think verse 1 tells us, to consider his works, to recount his deeds. And when we do, notice what joy that brings. For David says in verse 2, I will be glad and exult in you. And perhaps your translation says, I will rejoice in you. There is gladness in my heart when I do this. There is rejoicing in my heart. In other words, praise is not simply a mental exercise. Praising God will often bring joy into our hearts. You ever wonder why God demands that we praise him? Why, why does God command we worship him? I mean, do you like people who, who uh, demand you praise them? Right? Those people you want to hang around? You like people fishing for compliments? Those are real fun, right? What's God doing? Why does he command that he must be praised? Why does he say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may go out and worship me? Right? Over and over and over again. Why? Well, I don't know. Perhaps you've noticed that we actually delight, we, we, we praise rather what we delight in. We praise what we delight in. You do this instinctively. We all do. Right? We, 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 we hold a little baby in our, in our hands. 
in our arms, and we can't, we can't help but, but praise the baby because we're finding delight. Look at the fingers. Look, look how beautiful she is and, and things like that. We, we walk by a, a, a beautiful flower garden, and we say, well, you need to smell this. We, we, have, we feel, somehow have to talk about it, right? We, we, many of us were, were praising a basketball game in Blacksburg on Friday night, weren't we? At least some of us were, right? We instinctively praise the things we enjoy, don't we? We enjoy it. We praise it. In fact, C.S. Lewis actually tells us it completes our joy. In other words, if you can't smack your friend on the knee and say, wasn't that incredible play, right? You don't enjoy the game as much as you would otherwise. Our joy, in other words, is incomplete until we praise. Listen to what Lewis said. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. You hear that? I mean, if that's true, then our joy in God is incomplete until we can express it in praise. And so go go back to the question, why does God demand our praise? Not because he needs it, but because we do. His demand for us to praise him, to make much of him, is an act of love to us. In demanding that we worship him, he is actually enabling our joy in that which is supremely valuable, namely himself. And we see this great joy in David's heart. You'll see it again later on in this psalm as he praises God for the wonderful works in which he has done. In fact, in verse 3, he turns to the, to the actual works that, he, that brings him such joy. You might find it surprising to, to hear he, him say when he's recounting these works. In verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. He says, my enemies are defeated, for you are a sovereign judge. Notice they, they, my enemies fall not in David's presence, but in the Lord's. It's here you note that David seems to be considering what God has done for him in the past, that he's helped uh, that, that God has delivered him. This is when my enemies had turned back. And this is going to help him endure the present. I think this is an important principle we see throughout Scripture, something that we often fail to do. In the midst of trouble and uncertainty in our life, do we often go back and meditate and even praise God on the mighty acts that he has already done for us in Christ or done in our lives and even praise him for it so that we can be confident for the future? I would suggest to you, if you're struggling to trust God today, you might just want to go back and praise him for what he did yesterday, that you might have greater faith to face the challenges today. Evidently, God had given David great victories there, uh, defeated his enemies, because he is the enthroned judge, as David turns to in verse 4, writing, for you maintain my just cause, you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. God is a judge. God is the perfect judge. God sees through lies and deceit. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be tricked. He judges, according to David, with righteousness. As we read elsewhere in the scripture, and will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, answer, yes, he will. He will do right. And that, in that right Uh, judgment we count on just as David did for you see in verse 5 he says you have rebuked the nations you have made the wicked perish you have blotted out their name forever and ever now David begins to pivot you see from his personal enemies to enemies in general he's now speaking of the nations and says well they've perished that is that God blots them out so I wonder, where is the famous Babylon we hear so much about? Where, where is Assyria today? Where is Persia the Great? Where are the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Moabites and the Edomites? It's just a vague memory. They've been blotted out, as David seems to prophesy here even. 
people, it seems to me, they, they want their name to be memorialized. I think we all have that instinct. We want to be remembered. Right? And, 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 and in fact, to those who have the means, they'll give millions of dollars in order to have their names go on after them. They'll get their names on the building, right? or at least maybe a brick in the building. And yet, I, I would suggest to you, in, a, in just a handful of years, no one really cares. No one even knows. I, I spent a, a great deal of time inside a building called Cameron Indoor Stadium. Right? I don't even know who Cameron is. Right? Who's Cameron? I don't know. Don't really care, to be perfectly honest. Right? I, I, I went to a university that bears a family name called Duke. I don't even know who the Dukes are other than tobacco farmers who took a, a wonderful named college named Trinity College and said, we're going to drop the Trinity and put our name on it. That's pretty audacious, isn't it? No Trinity, let's go with, uh, with us, right? But I mean, who are they? Don't really know. I, I imagine most of us don't know, right? I mean, who, who cares, we say. And yet we have this instinct that we want to be remembered, we want to be immortalized. I would suggest to you that the only way uh, to, to be immortalized, if you will, the only way to be remembered is not to put your name on the side of a building, as great as that might be. I'm not trying to suggest you ought not to give to charity or even your alma mater. But I would suggest the best way to continue your name is to have your name written down somewhere else, namely in the Lamb's Book of Life. For it is promised in Revelation 3 by the words of Jesus himself that unlike the wicked nations here in Psalm 9, your name will never be blotted out. And the other group, the other option, of course, is to be God's enemy. You could be written down in his book or you could stand in opposition to to him, and therefore your destiny will be recorded in verse 6, wouldn't it? For we read, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. I tell you, based upon the authority of the word of God, that everlasting ruin is the fate for all who refuse God's mercy in Christ. God will judge. I understand I say that in 2019, and the Western world, and that seems a little primitive to most today, perhaps. We're willing to uh, perhaps acknowledge that God might protect the poor and the needy, but judges the nations. That seems a little too much. And so what much many have done, we've tried to clean up God's image. We try to make God a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more acceptable today, and get rid of this judgment idea, and this is God's just there to love and help and, 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 uh, and, and be like a grandfather, right? God's a grandfather. And what grandfather needs a throne, right? Grandfathers don't need thrones. And God is, God is now lovely and mild and acceptable. In fact, he's so acceptable, we're safe to ignore him, right? We don't even need to bother with him. It just every once in a while, perhaps we'll pay him homage. And, and then you even hear from pulpits, hey, why don't you do God the favor of inviting him into your life? Well, I don't know if you're doing God much favor. I think he's probably doing you the favor. And in fact, I think he's more than just someone who's just uh, uh, begging and pleading. I think he's someone who's sitting upon a throne and he's ruling and he demands to be worshipped. He demands for us to trust him. Though he who has created us demands for us to repent to him. You see, the Bible tells us a different story. It tells us here, black and white, isn't it? That he, he will judge the nations if they continue in their rebellion of unbelief. And yet the great glory is even now, this very moment, he offers clemency to anyone who would receive it in Christ. He offers full amnesty, full forgiveness. He offers that, that he will forgive all your sins if, if, if anyone to hear or world rounds would simply bow their knee in faith to Christ and yield themselves to this crucified and risen king. You see, uh, the, the, that, those are the options before us. And we can have justice or we can have forgiveness. In fact, what, what we see here, what David's speaking about there in verse 6, everlasting ruins, he's speaking about ultimate justice, isn't he? Um, but elsewhere, in fact, quite often in, in, in the Psalms in particular, we're not referring to this ultimate justice, the justice at the, the last days, but we're often referring to, the psalmist is at least, to earthly justice, something they often pray for. And I, I just bring that up because though we commit ultimate justice into the hands of God, we should, as God's people, work for earthly justice, limited justice. You remember the parable that Jesus taught of the, of the widow who could not get the judge to rule on her, ha- on her behalf because she was poor and had no bribe for him. Right? That is not simply a problem long ago. That continues today in many, many countries. The poor are abused, they are neglected, they have no power, and so they are cast aside. And God's people should be pr- particular, particularly concerned with those issues. 
issues of justice. Our preoccupation with the final judgment of God, in other words, that that is God will right all wrongs, praise God for it, should not make us indifferent to the needs of justice now. And again, I think C.S. Lewis is helpful. He says, imagine two boys fighting over a pencil. There's two issues at hand. One is justice. Who does the pencil belong to, Tommy or Charlie? Okay. The other is kindness. So two issues. Lewis says, what we must not do is tell Tommy to let Charlie have the pencil when it belongs to Tommy because that's the nice thing to do. It may be the nice thing to do, but it is, according to Lewis, an untimely truth. He says, there's a time to be kind, but let, don't, let kind, don't let kindness further injustice. An exhortation to charity should not come as a refusal of justice. It is likely to give Tommy a lifelong conviction that charity is simply a sanctimonious dodge for condoning theft. In other words, what, what I think scripture teaches us and Lewis is capturing is that we need to fight and pray for justice here upon this earth even as we entrust ourselves to him who will ultimately judge um, justly, just as David does, as you see in verse 7. He says here, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He shall establish his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. God is enthroned. Kings come and go. Queens are born and die. Countless generations, they march on. But the Lord is the same today as he was when David prayed to him. He reigned in that day. He's enthroned in heaven on that day. He reigns in our day. And my brothers and sisters, he reigns in righteousness. He reigns in uprightness by which all of our lives will be measured. All of us shall be held accountable to this great and and righteous judge, whether in Christ or based upon our own works. This is the judge of the world. And, and though he will judge the nations in righteousness, look at this great hope that is offered for those who seek him as a refuge. In verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, David writes. In other words, God is doing two things in this psalm, isn't he? He's judging the wicked, and he's a shelter for the oppressed, the poor. God is concerned with the oppressed and the poor. He's concerned with widows in Guatemala as many of you are. He's concerned with orphans in Ghana, as many of you are. He is concerned with the displaced in Iraq. He is concerned with the poor and the unborn and the marginalized in northern Virginia. And we should be concerned as well. We should, therefore, be used by God to provide refuge for them, bring them into our lives, provide shelter the best we can as God leads us so that they might, what, put their trust in him. Is that what he says there in verse 10? And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God is a refuge for those who do all of his law. My friends, none of us have done that. God is rather a refuge for those who trust in him, put their faith in him. Of course, this doesn't mean God will solve all their problems. Just read Psalm 10 if you'd like to see that. But it does mean that God will walk with them through their trials. That God will take them through their cold winters if they seek him, if they place their faith in him. And even as David, perhaps a refuge at this time, or a, a, one who needs a refuge rather, I should say. Perhaps this thought of God, not just the great judge, but the great shelter, kind of brings him back to where he started. And he begins to praise him again. And yet here in verse 11, unlike in verse 1, he actually invites other people to join him. Note he says, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. I want you to note now for the second time, we saw this in verse 1, now in verse 11, that David, uh, he combines singing with proclaiming. Do you see that there? In fact, he tells us that we should proclaim to the peoples or to to the nations. That's a literal translation. There's a combination of praise and preaching, a combination of singing and telling. In fact, all the great revivals in the history of the church have always included both. You think about the great Protestant Reformation where uh, the gospel was rediscovered and, and biblical truth was beginning to pro- be proclaimed in the language of the people. And at the same time, there's this massive spread of congregational praise, largely through the hymns that Luther wrote. You think about the revival in Great Britain brought about by the great preaching of uh, ministry of John Wesley. 
but was followed by the great revival and praise with the hymns that his brother Charles wrote, along with Cooper and Newton and others. Right? God seems to always, when God does his work, always begins to, to, to bring about the, the proclamation of his, of his deeds and his character and the, pre, uh, the, the praise of his people. And this is so, what, what do we do every Sunday morning? What is the, kind of the heart of what we do? We do what the Bible tells us to do. We want to hear God's deeds recounted to us, and we want to praise him for it. This is what we do every Sunday. This is what should be happening in the nations. This is why Josh is exhorting you so strongly to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Because this God is worthy of the worship of the peoples of this world. He has given us the entrustment to spread that gospel to the nations. And he's given us the resources to do it. There are people willing to go if we have the resources. And so we give generously and sacrificially that the name of God may go forth. His deeds may be recounted. And his praise may usher in from the nation's around this great world in which he has made. And it is this, to this that David invites the nations to gather him to praise uh, this great God. And finally, now, he has properly praised God. Twelve verses of praising God, rehearsing all the great works of God, that he now begins to pray to God for help. And I think this is an incredible principle. Perhaps this is the takeaway for you this morning. Is that, is that uh, p- prior to coming to God in prayer, you might do well to spend time considering who God is and what he has done for you. And I think if you remind yourself of those truths, of the truths of what you already know about God, tell your heart them, you might find that your prayers are guided by them. You might find that might impact what you ask for and how you ask for it. I think that's what David is doing here as he now turns, secondly, to a prayer for future help. As he says in verse 13, the first request in this whole psalm, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. You notice David's life is in danger. Death is pictured by him as a walled city. And David has come to the gates. but They seem to be closed. And so he asks God to raise them that he might escape this place. In fact, you notice he does so by asking God to be gracious to me, there in verse 13, to give him mercy. Notice David does not ask for what he deserves. He does not approach God based upon his own achievement. He does not lay out his resume before God. I'm a king, and I'm on this, and I'm that. And he just simply comes and says, I I need mercy. This is how we should come to God in prayer. When you're praying for yourself, you're praying for one you love, we don't come to God and say, hey, God, they have this need, and you ought to do it because they did this and this and this. Right, look at all of what they've done, therefore you should do this need. We shouldn't lay before God all of our achievements. We should not come to God and say, heal this person because they have been so good to you. No, we should not appeal to who they are, but rather appeal to who God is. And God is what? Right there in verse 13, he is gracious. He is merciful. Heal him because you are gracious, God. Work in their life because you are merciful, God. We don't come to God as people who have some type of achievement before God, and God kind of owes us. He has to pay out now. We come always and shall forever as sinners needing mercy, sinners needing grace. Perhaps you're a non-Christian here this morning. We're delighted to have you. And maybe you've been given the impression by Christians that, that, that we think we are morally superior to you. I am sorry. Allow me to apologize if that is the impression that Christians have given you. Because we do not believe that. We believe, in fact, we are all sinners who have come to a gracious God and have been showered by his mercy and grace. And this is what David is clearly dealing with. This great king does not appeal to his greatness, but he appeals to the very mercy of God. We want this grace in our lives. He wants it. We want it. Notice why he wants it. Why, do, why, I mean, why does David want the gates of death to be open to him? So that he might live long and prosper? That he might, uh, you know, he's got some beaches he needs to visit? I mean, what's he after? What's he want? Look what he says in verse 14. That I, here's the purpose statement. Do this, verse 13, purpose statement, so that... Verse 14, I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. 
Open the gates of death for me. Save me from my enemies so that I might, what? Praise you. So that I might proclaim what you have done in my life. I want to sing of your praises once again, he returns to. I want to tell the daughters of Zion, that is my brothers and sisters amongst the people of God, what my God has done. I want to go to the public places there even in the gates of Jerusalem itself and rejoice in you. Because David says, my chief end is not to enjoy simply my life and escape from my enemies, but it is to bring you glory as I enjoy you forever. Christian, has he opened to you the gates of death? You hear that prayer? Open to me the gates of death. Has he done that for you? I think he has, hasn't he? Will you not pass through death because of Christ? And if he has, will you not likewise do what David says he'll do in verse 14? Will you not recount his praises because of that great work? In uh, James Boyce's commentary on, on the ninth psalm, he says, In light of this verse, I decided for the rest of my life to once a day tell someone of God's greatness. Could be a child, could be a spouse, could be a coworker, could be someone in the line. I'm going to say, it might even just be a sentence, but I, every day I'm going to say, I'm going to tell someone, I'm going to recount, according to like David did, the greatness of my God in some way. And in doing so, he discovered three truths. Maybe you're looking for a New Year's resolution. This might be one. As Boyce discovered that he was one, surprised how much time goes by without praising God for anything. He was shocked at that. And number two, he began to think of God's goodness far more often, constantly rehearsing in his mind what God has done for him this day and so forth. And he impacted his life in many ways. And number three, he, he found himself to be a great encouragement to others. And I trust you will be as well. Now, some will think you're weird, okay? That's okay, right? You're going to be a blessing to many. I think we should be quick and constant in testifying to one another, particularly amongst these people here at Hamilton Baptist Church, what God has done for us. What has he done for you this week? What has he taught you this week? What is, how has he provided for you this week? Let's be quick to share the mercy he's given to us that is anew and fresh even this week. It's this mercy that David prays for and the mercy that he does, that is asking for will come in his context when his enemies are defeated. As you see in verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net they hid their own feet uh, has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. Right? Notice uh, the nature of, da- uh, of the judgment that David is confident God will bring about. Just as Haman hung from his own gallows, he, he says they're going to be snared in their own trap. And I think this is what we often see, is it not? We see the violent dying by violence, the greedy who are constantly discontent, gossipers who seek to tear down others, only end up ruining their own reputation. They're digging their own hole, shovel by shovel, and they will eventually fall in, David says, whether in this life or the life to come. And then you notice these musical terms after verse 16, Higeon, Shelah. Uh, the, I meant, we, we're not exactly sure what these terms mean. We do know they are musical terms. In fact, you look in the very beginning of the psalm, and, and we read, to the choir master according to the Muth Laban, a psalm of David. In other words, what, what we know, this was a choral piece of music. This was sung by the choir. And we come to these terms at the end of verse 16. Many speculate that they, they, what they mean is for the instruments to continue to play to play while the people are silent for a moment, reflecting upon what they have just sung. Right? Let us think about this great God and his judgments, even upon those who persist in their rebellion. When the singing resumes, we read verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Sheol are the graves to the place which they will, according to David, return. I think that's an interesting word there. He doesn't say they depart to the grave. He says they're returning to the grave. They're, they're, it's almost as if they're going home. After all, the enemies of God, just like you and I once were, are dead in their trespasses and sins. And un, unlike us, who have by God's grace been made alive in Jesus. Well, if that's the fate of the wicked, we see help is on the way for those who trust in the Lord. For verse 18 tells us, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and, their, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. God will once again not neglect the poor, and as those who Jesus taught us, the poor in spirit. God cares for you. Please understand that today. Hear this from the word of God. 
God cares for you. He will not forget you. God is a, longs and has a heart for the needy and for the poor. But not all who encounter God will find him to be such a comfort. In fact, David ends this psalm praying once again, calling for God to make himself known. For he writes in verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. It seems to David and perhaps seems to you as it does to me that many people have forgotten their place. And David says they need to be reminded that they are but men and not the gods they presume to be. And so arise, God. Let them know who they are in light of who you are. What an incredible psalm that David writes. The question that kind of uh, uh, continues to resonate in my own heart as I uh, studied it and even as I bring it to you this morning is, were these prayers answered? Did God actually do this? These are sweeping prayers, aren't they? Right? Has God judged the nations in his presence, like verse 19 tells us? Has he, has he let them know they are just men, verse 20? And we see this throughout. Verse 8, he will judge the world in righteousness. Do we see that happening? You know, David, of course, would reign for 40 years. Uh, one of the most uh, mighty kings of Israel. Many enemies defeated. And yet just, but, 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 you know, in all said and done, all he was doing is ruling this little piece of real estate in the middle of a place we now call the Middle East. In fact, I think much of this psalm, I should not surprise you, points to one who is coming. I think it points to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who one day will rule the nations in justice. You know, Isaiah promised, we sometimes read this passage around Christmas time, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the the wicked. Isaiah told us in chapter 11 that uh, the, uh, the, the stump of Jesse, that is the son of David, is coming. And he will one day judge the nations. But before he does that, just like his father David, he too would face his enemies, wouldn't he? He too would be familiar with affliction. He too would be acquainted with grief. The the son of David would encounter a horde of enemies, namely you and me. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 and verse 10 that we were God's enemies. And so God in Christ encounters his enemies, namely us, and the question does, uh, raises, does he bring justice? Well, yeah, he does, doesn't he? But not in judgment upon his enemies, but by his grace, great grace in judgment upon David's greater son. For us, his enemies. I mean, did you hear David, what, he, what did he pray there in verse 13? Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. He, he did lift David from the gates of death. He will, Christian, raise you from the grips of the grave because precisely he did not for his son. At least not initially. As he hung upon that cross God judged not the people, but Christ in righteousness, in uprightness for the sins that I have committed and for the sins that you have committed. And three days later, when that stony gate of death was rolled away, the tomb was empty and Christ was lifted up, was he not? And lifted all the way up to that throne in heaven where he sits this very day. And there is coming a day when he will do just as David prayed, arise. He will get up from the throne and he will come and let the nations know they are but men. 
The Bible tells us in Acts 17, he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I tell you, based upon the authority of scripture this morning, Christ is one of two things to you. He is either your judge or he is your refuge. Perhaps you come here thinking, I I deserve no judge and I need no refuge. I will make it on my own. That might may be your resolution, but please understand God is clearly of a different mind. That's why he sent his son. That's why we get so excited about Christmas. Not because we like babies, though we do, don't we? Shepherds and magi, they're fun as well. That's not where the joy lies. The joy lies that Christ has come to be a refuge for those who are poor in spirit, those who despair of their own spiritual wealth and yield their life to Christ. Would you come and bow your knee even now as I speak to you in your heart, saying, Lord Jesus, I yield myself to you. I believe you died upon the cross to pay for my sin. I believe the judgment of God was poured out upon you for me. I believe you rose from the dead three days later, and now I yield my life. Will you be merciful to me, a sinner? And you know what? He will be if you simply yield your life to him. In fact, even now as we come to this supper table, we, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating that he is indeed our refuge, as the psalmist tells us over and again. He is our refuge. Why? Because judgment fell upon Christ. We celebrate refuge found under a broken body and shed blood. And even as we distribute these elements, may God speak to our hearts that we have a hiding place. We have a refuge because Christ has received the judgment that was due for us, that he has paid that penalty that we might even say along with David long ago, therefore we will praise you with all our heart. We will tell of your wonderful deeds. Our Father in heaven, we are eternally grateful for the work of Christ on our behalf. We are once again in awe to see how your scripture prepares us for our Lord. That the justice that is reserved for the nations was first taken by your son so that all who would yield their life and trust in you might receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. It's this that we celebrate. You have done so much for us. As David would teach us, we could, we could spend days just talking about all that you've done. But chief among them all, is you have sent your son to die for sinners that we might find a refuge in him. And it's this refuge that we celebrate even as we silently prepare our own hearts for the Lord's Supper.